Listener, you may be confused by why this is in your feed. Well, Black Label was released for free this month, and I didn't want to leave you guys strapped without bonus content. So, I've started a project I've had in the back of my mind for a while. When I first started, I had nothing but a $50 microphone and a dream. Because of this, many of the first, let's say, 32 episodes had absolutely terrible production quality. Plus, I was still learning to write and edit, but I still think that there was good content there. So, one of the things I want to do for you guys, as extra content from time to time, is remake, remaster, re-record, and expand some of the oldest content, the content that can use it the most. Oba Chandler, in my opinion, he's kind of the roots of Black Label, predating even Nick Stoutzenberger. When I first wrote this episode and released it, I got a lot of heat on Twitter, social media, like Facebook, all that stuff. Like, people were not too happy with this episode. And I think that they didn't understand what I was doing. And I think a lot of people didn't realize that the quote-unquote dialogue in the episode comes directly from witness testimony. And then there's the act of extreme cruel violence featured in this episode. In my opinion... These scenes shouldn't be softened. They should be shown for what they are. At the time when I released the episode, a lot of people were very upset at the graphic detail I used. Considering I have access to witness testimony, I was able to go into great detail, greater than I had before at the time. There was even an angry blog written about the episode at the time that I think I might want to track down and reread for kicks. But anyway... Uh, Part two should be coming soon, and originally it was a three-parter, and I'm going to make sure to reduce it down to a two-parter so you guys don't have to wait long. I'll try to get that released to you guys ASAP, but anyway, I think that wraps things up. I'm going to let you listen to the episode now and stop wasting your time. Let's get on with it. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. Dreaming. May 1989, 9.30 p.m. Judy Blair and her friend, Barbara Montram, enter the parking lot of the 7-Eleven in a cheery mood. They are on a quick stroll to the gas station. The women want to grab a couple cases of beer, continue their good time, and their conversation kept lighthearted. Florida is humid and the air is thick almost chewable. This even though the sun went down hours ago. Blair and Matram are loving Florida. The Canadian tourists love the state in the way only those on vacation can. Days earlier, plans to go fishing with a couple of boys fell through. Judy and Linda are now rocking tans, not resembling the two pale figures days earlier aboard a plane. 
the plane a fast track to the event that would change their lives forever. By the time the girls call it quits after long days and nights, they smell of perfume, of salt water and suntan lotion. The hum of jet ski is still in their ears, beckoning them back to the water before drifting off. Before the pair step foot in the 7-Eleven, a dark-looking four-wheel drive truck pulls up, and in it rides the nightmare that will wake Judy Blair and Barbara Mottram from their dream. The truck looks like a Ford Bronco or a Jeep Cherokee. The man inside rolls his window down. He's stocky, five foot nine inches tall, and in his mid-thirties. He has bushy, sun-bleached hair and a mustache. What are you girls doing by yourself this time of night? The girls laugh. This area has a lot of crime. You shouldn't talk to any strangers. Not even me. Again, they laugh. The man introduces himself as Dave Posner. He offers Blair and Mottram a ride after they're done in the convenience store. The girls accept. The ride back is quick. Dave is friendly and talkative. Barbara's not receptive. She senses something off, though. She keeps it to herself. Blair and Posner hit it off. Dave talks of work in the aluminum siding contracting business. Life in Florida. And the fact that he owns a 30-foot boat. When they arrive at the destination, Barbara starts to leave, happy to clear herself of Dave Posner. Judy hangs back. Dave asks her if she'd like to get together sometime. Blair tells him that she wants to go fishing. Posner offers up his boat. Blair accepts and Posner agrees to meet them tomorrow at 2 p.m. Dave points towards the boardwalk, shadow of evening cast over its rough wood. Be at Don's dock at 2 Smiling, the man drives off. Judy catches up with Barbara and tells her the plans. But Barbara isn't interested. She tells Blair that something's off about this guy. There's something about Dave she doesn't like, and Judy shouldn't meet him tomorrow. It's a feeling in her stomach. Judy's confused. Barbara seemed fine with hanging with strangers during the entirety of their vacation. They'd spent hours with guys met the same day. What's the difference here? Judy pleads with Barbara, but her friend's stance remains firm. If Judy wants to go, it's not going to be with Barbara. The next day, Judy walks to the boardwalk herself. It's a little early, so she spends some time at the shops. After a bit, she makes herself to the docks. Boats sit tied to the dock and rock in ocean water. Judy Blair spots Dave Posner in his boat. He's wearing a green shirt that has mesh around the bottom, a wide-brim hat that's doing a poor job concealing his hair loss. The boat has a faded blue exterior and white interior. It's smaller than 30 feet. Was Judy lied to? Or did she misremember? Dave is waving her on. Judy pauses for a moment, then steps on board. Where's your friend? Judy turns a bright red. Harbor's not coming. She said she didn't feel like it. For a moment, a flash of disappointment in Dave Posner's face. But only a moment. He then brightens. Looks resolute. Oh well. Judy sits in one of the front seats. She eyes the boat's interior. Notice with curiosity the boat's engine is painted yellow. and has Volvo written across the top. 
Shortly after they're off, Dave's jovial and talkative again. He takes Judy on a tour of Pinellas County beaches for hours. They share sandwiches. Dave smokes, but he didn't bring alcohol. Judy feels a dizzying peace as the day melts away and the sun bakes her skin. The bright sun hanging overhead, the humming boat skimming the water. Dave teaches Judy how to deep water fish. He talks a lot about himself. He lives in Bradenton with his mother and owns an aluminum company. Dave tells her that salt water is corrosive and damaging to boats. Judy asks him if he has a girlfriend, and he tells her no. He has trouble with girls. The sun starts to sink. The skyline is a hazy orange, dotted with pockets of off-purple. They ride back to the dock. Before Judy Blair steps off the boat, Dave has another idea. He tells her that while the ocean is beautiful during the day, it's a different beast at night. She should see. Judy exclaims she would love to go out at night. Look, Dave says, I have to clean the boat. Go have some dinner. If you come back after, I'll give you a sunset cruise you won't forget. Oh, and bring your friend. Back at the condo, Judy can't contain her excitement. She tells her family and Barbara over dinner what a great time she had. Judy tries to convince Barbara to go out with her tonight. Still, Barbara's firm. Something about Dave made her uncomfortable. Part 2. Awakening Wearing a two-piece under jeans and a t-shirt... Judy Blair is back to the boardwalk around 7.30 p.m. She apologizes for Barbara not coming. This time, Dave looks upset, and for far more than a moment. Judy feels bad for hurting his feelings, but Dave regroups, and before long, they're back on the water. Judy brought her camera and starts snapping photographs of the sunset. The two even snap playful pictures of each other. Dave takes a picture of Judy standing by the edge of the boat, against the ocean and sunset. He lowers the camera. You're a nice-looking lady. Thank you, Judy replies. Thank you. It's half dark now. There's only a small orange glow in the sky. The sun almost completely sank. It's pale top hanging over the horizon. Hey, did you want to drive the boat? Judy accepts. She sits in the driver's seat and Dave helps her work the throttle. It's getting quiet. There's the sound of a buoy's bell, the wind of the ocean, light waves. The water's pitch black. For the first time, something begins to creep up Judy's spine, an awareness that wasn't there before. Dave wanders off to do a few menial tasks and Judy notices light in nearby condos start to turn on. She imagines what her family are doing in theirs. It starts to sink in that she's out here alone with a stranger. Dave is staring at her. He stands in the dark, blanketed by the night, with beams of moonlight cast over his face. Judy's afraid. She feels fear climb over her. It's really dark. Can we go back? Dave stands still for a moment. She can't make out his face anymore. 
but she feels him eyeing her. He's swaying. The movement is slight. Come here. I want to hug you. The shock is immediate and paralyzing. Judy might faint. White dots spot her vision. Goose flesh rays on her skin. Her stomach drops. She might be sick. Dave approaches. Judy wants to resist, but can't move. Dave steps behind her and wraps his arms around her. The arms are long and hairy, thick with muscle and pronounced veins. Days spent in Florida humidity working the aluminum siding business built these arms. It's unassuming strength, not show strength crafted in a local gym. With his right hand, he holds her forearm above the wrist, clamps down. He whispers in Judy's ear, Come on, I want you to sit on my lap. Dave starts to pull her by the arm, and Judy comes too. She belts out a scream. Dave, let's go of her. Do you think anyone can hear you out here? Dave lets out a scream himself. The dark water surrounding the boat swallows the sound before it's carried off. In desperation, Judy responds. You lay one hand on me again, and I'll tell everyone you raped me. Dave stands up straight. His features harden. There's no way around this. You're going to have sex with me. What are you going to do? Jump overboard? I don't want to. Please. I'm a virgin. Judy croaks. Leave me alone. Dave pulls off his pants and underwear. Never breaking eye contact, he grabs Judy by her hair and lowers her head. Don't you fucking bite. His mask is slipped. Gone was Dave Posner. Here stands Oba Chandler in his great and terrible power. With no means of escape, Judy performs oral sex. After Oba Chandler grabs a towel and throws it on the floor, Judy jumps with shock from the quick movement. Oba grabs her by the shirt and rips it off. Judy is shaking with sobs as Oba tugs her jean shorts and swimsuit bottom down. Shut up. Shut up. If you don't shut your mouth, I'm going to tape it shut. Do you want that? There's a silence between the two. Is sex worth losing your life over? He asks her. An awful understanding passes between the two. Judy gives in. No, I don't. Oba Chandler climbs atop her. He starts pulling at her breasts. He reaches between her legs, puts his hand inside her, and yanks out her tampon. Judy feels more terrified than she's ever felt in her life. She feels as if she might die of fright. Oba spreads her legs in a swift jerking motion. He inserts himself in her and begins to thrust. As he thrusts, he repeats over and over the mantra that she has a nice fucking pussy. Chandler starts to slow, and then he ejaculates inside her. He takes a moment to gather himself. Oba rolls Judy over on her stomach and attempts to have anal sex with her. Oba can't get himself erect again, so he gives up. He hands Judy his thermos of water 
and tells her she needs to douche. Oba Chandler becomes ill. He makes it in time to the edge of the boat to vomit over the side. When Chandler's finished, he starts to panic. He grabs Judy Blair's camera, rips out the film, throwing it overboard. He then starts to wipe his prints from Judy's belongings. He throws Judy her clothes. Get dressed. Judy Blair lay on the ground during the whole process, crying. She's still terrified, but she's getting dressed. Again, the man went to the side of the boat to vomit. They make their way back. Oba lets Judy leave, but first he asks her to promise something. I know you're going to report me to the police. Before you do, give me enough time to tell my mother. She's a little old lady. She'll die if the police arrive at the door. Judy nods her head. Oba drops Judy off at Treasure Island. She climbs into the knee-high water. She can hear Oba tell her to watch her step. She walks back to the condo, dazed. She's overcome with feelings of shame, embarrassment, and horror. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. When Judy arrives at the studio, she heads straight to the bathroom. She stares at herself in the mirror for a while then runs a scalding hot tub of water. She lays in it for hours. Judy tries not to think about what happened, about the buoy bell or the man cast in moonlight and shadow against black water. She can't stop shaking. The next day, Judy keeps everything secret. She doesn't want to ruin her mother's birthday. Everyone's happy. Presents, dinner, smoke curling from candles, lit atop birthday cake. 
That night, she finds the courage to tell Barbara. The two friends flag down a police officer together. Judy's brought to a local health center, and she's given a rape kit. To the credit of the police department, no one doubts Judy's story. Part 3. The Rogers Family The Rogers are a hard-working farming family. They wake before sunrise and head to their milking parlor. The parlor is a small rectangular room. It has one window. Its only other light source is the pale glow of fluorescent lights. When working in the tight quarters, you're treated to the smell of manure and peppermint oil. The peppermint oil is scrubbed into cow skin. The cows get milked by the family for three hours in the morning. After milking the room, the machines need cleaning. This is all done again in the afternoon. There aren't days off for this kind of work. It's done every day of the year. Those aren't the only tasks for the day. There's the breeding. First done by a bull, but now by artificial insemination. Then the fields need plowing and the crops need planting. Al Rogers is a stocky man who wears shaded glasses and has large biceps, brown hair, and a beard. He's known to go days without sleep. When there's work that needs doing, he knows that his family depends on work getting done. By the end of a hard day, his hands are usually completely numb. Not aching by that point, a dull tingle felt around the edge of his fingers. In the 2007 published book, Death Cruise, written by Donald A. Davis, Hal Rogers is quoted saying, I was born old. Whenever things get bleak, Hal looks to Joe as his anchor. Even when times are hard, he still loves his wife. Joan Rogers, who goes by the name of Joe, is the hardest worker of the family. Hal knows that Joe works him under the table. Joe is thin, with brown hair that she curls. She wears shaded glasses like her husband. But unlike her husband, Joe is outgoing and friendly. As a child, Joe liked to play dress-up with her dogs. As a teen, she liked to sew. In school, Joe learned how to play clarinet and the cello. And for sports, she played bowling and softball. From a young age, she had a strong affection for rock and roll music that she carries with her into adulthood. In high school, Joe and Hal dated, and Joe became pregnant. The two married. Joe's parents are so embarrassed by the pregnancy that Joe isn't allowed to wear a wedding dress. They keep the service small. For their honeymoon, they spend a weekend in Fort Wayne at the Hospitality Inn. Their first home had poor insulation. In the frigid Ohio winter, it wasn't uncommon for the house interior to drop below zero. Joe is an independent woman. She likes to drive a motorcycle. She respects what Hal has to say, but will shut him down if she disagrees. If the farm work begins to close in on her, she makes Hal take her to dinner. But Joe is sweet on him as well. Joe writes Hal little cards proclaiming her love, left around the house for him to find. Before the doomed trip to Florida, Joe confesses to Hal she wants another baby. The children, Michelle and Christy, make the best of hard-working life. The two love the cows and have a name for each one. Christy thinks of the cows as her pets, and she practices her cheerleading routine in front of them. Hal sometimes sees her out there, performing her routine for her bovine audience, 
and smiles. Michelle loves the farm. She wakes early before school to help with chores. Christy's considered the energetic one, playful and with a strong sense of humor. Michelle quiet and mature beyond her years. Things are hard on the farm, but they're family. By May of 1989, Joe and Hal had begun to look weathered, weathered in a way that hardworking laborers start to look in life. For Joe, there's dark bags forming beneath her eyes. Her cheeks are tight, looking stretched across her face. She's 36. This is not a knock on her looks. No, the opposite. Evidence of a life of hard, honest work. Joe sometimes works night shifts for Peyton's Northern and gets home in time to start the morning routine. Somehow, things get harder. Al's younger brother, John Rogers, moves onto the property in a trailer on the side of the house. Al and John are partners, though Hal is the harder worker. But they own the farm together, so Hal puts up with his brother. Nearby Van Wert, people know something isn't right about John. He wears a military garb, tells anyone with an earshot stories. Stories about how he'd been a secret agent for the government and worked secret missions. Espionage. John carries with him an uncomfortable lack of self-awareness. This lack of awareness makes it impossible for John to read a room. Even when people give each other looks or try to disengage from John's orbit, he persists. In 1988, these feelings about John prove not to be in vain. John's arrested and charged for the sexual assault of a woman who lived with him in his trailer. The woman and John once dated, but now they live together. One night, she came home to the trailer and saw something frightening. As soon as she walks in, sitting in the kitchen is a camera on a tripod. John, wearing a mask, runs from where he's hiding and knocks her down. She's forced to perform fellatio and anal sex. John put handcuffs on the victim. After the sexual assault, John lets her go. She drives to the hospital at 3.30 a.m. that morning. Police arrive at 4 a.m. to interview her, but she's uncooperative. Weeks later, she builds up strength and courage to file a complaint against John Rogers. Detectives arrive at the Rogers Dairy Farm to find him washing milk tanks. They ask to talk to John in his trailer, and he agrees. The detectives read John as Miranda writes and begin to press him. A detective notices a brown briefcase in the trailer. What's in the briefcase? The detective asks John. Tax papers, John answers. But there's something in his eyes and confirms the hunch. He's hiding something. There's a three-dial lock on the briefcase. John, we're going to need you to open the briefcase. John gives them a number. It doesn't work. And then another that doesn't work. And then John tries. Nothing seems to unlock the briefcase. John stands up. He's visibly shaken. John mutters, This is taking too long. I've got a broken belt out there. If it doesn't get fixed, there's going to be some hungry cows. The detectives tell him he has 30 minutes and that they'll wait. While working the task, John Rogers manages to get a brief moment to whisper in his niece's ear. He wants her to unlock the briefcase and dispose of its contents. She tries to obey, but... Being young, K-9 
can't figure out how to work the lock. With his task finished, John turns and sees the officers standing where he left them. They're stone-faced. They the hunters, he the prey. John walks back to them, his heart pounding in his chest. They hand John a screwdriver. John can feel the beat of his heart in his ears now. John is handy. He pops the lock of the briefcase. Easy. Its contents. An hour of tape. Tape with unimaginable footage of sexual assault. Photographs of a naked and bound girl. And many cassette tapes. The tape and the scream of the recorded woman is enough to shake hardened investigators. The girl in the photographs is recognized. It's Hal Rogers' 14-year-old daughter, Michelle. Part 4. Hard Times. June 1st, 1986. John Rogers asks Michelle to come to his trailer. He tells her he's in pain and needs a back rub. John has Michelle insert medicated cream into his anus. He then forces a 14-year-old to perform vaginal intercourse. This continues for over a year, with John escalating his sexual assault over time. Michelle keeps this secret to herself. Whether from the shame or fear, no one can judge her. On one occasion, John sneaks into his brother's home and finds Michelle sleeping in her bed. He wakes her up at knife point, blindfolds her, and then drags her to his trailer by her hair. John Rogers picked on Michelle in front of the family, often to the point where Michelle would lash out. Maybe this was his guilt manifesting, or his violation of Michelle in private wasn't enough. John denies everything. He claims he's being framed. Hal didn't have the full picture of what was going on. Michelle was tight-lipped at first about her horrific ordeal. This left Hal in the dark. Because of this, Hal Rogers was the one that posted bond for his brother John. Hal comes to see the full picture. He tells Michelle John will never come back. The court orders John to not come in contact with the family, so he moves to Michigan. Hal's quoted saying, If I'd known what it was, I'd have killed the son of a bitch to start with. By 1989, John realizes that he's not going to escape jail time. He pulls together money he has saved up and goes on a six-week vacation in Florida. This with his new girlfriend, his mother, and grandfather. John takes time to visit every attraction the state has to offer, from Disney World to Busch Gardens. When John returns from his vacation, he's offered a plea bargain. Michelle doesn't want to take the stand. This is more than understandable. The poor girl has been through enough trauma. John agrees to 7 to 25 years in prison on one count of rape. Hal and John's mother, Irene Rogers, stood by John's side. She feels that Michelle lied, and the photographic evidence and audio is not enough. John did not rape Michelle, she tells news sources. Michelle and her mother made everything up. They did it. Didn't you ever hear of 15 and 16-year-old girls making that stuff up? Irene Rogers goes as far to attempt to submit a doctored tape as evidence her son was innocent. Then there are the alleged notes John and Irene received. One said that if John didn't accept the plea bargain, that his and Irene's head would, quote, 
looked like pumpkins. A second was a threat to Irene. The final note said that, Two children, one mother that should not have told. Now they swim under the sea with heavy shoes. John denies that he sent himself the notes. At first, Hal wasn't upset with his mother, chalking it up to a mother defending her son. After her behavior becomes too much, John cuts ties with his mother. Hal spirals into a deep depression. He locks himself in John's former trailer for days. Hal doesn't know how to cope with the situation. In 1989, the Rogers begin to plan for vacation. The ordeal with John Rogers leaves the family reeling. A vacation can provide much-needed levity. They plan for Florida, which wins out over Tennessee. Michelle is so excited that she creates a countdown calendar. How must stay behind? There are no true vacations on the farm. There are the fields of corn and soybeans to think about not to mention the 100-plus cattle. Someone must keep it running, but Hal is happy for his family to get a break. Even if it's for a week, he wants them to be happy. The night before the big trip, the family has the usual jitters that comes with a vacation, especially Michelle and Christy. Only Joe and Hal has been on a vacation before. This new ground for the teenage girls. Michelle has a boyfriend named Jeff, who she knows she will miss a great deal. She met with Jeff one last time the night before and told him she didn't feel like going. Of course, this betrayed by the call in the morning in which she couldn't contain her excitement. Joe and the girls leave at 1.30 p.m. on the 26th. Before they leave, Joe runs up to Hal and gives him a hug and a kiss goodbye. Joe has $500 cash on her. The girls 100 cash each. They have a credit card with a spending limit of $500. Joe spends the whole day driving. She realizes they only have a week, and she wants to make the best of it. Long after the sun goes down and the sky dark, they arrive at Best Western in Dalton, Georgia. For dinner, they have barbecue, and for breakfast, they eat at Waffle House. On Saturday afternoon, they arrive in Florida. For now, that's where we leave the Rogers. A hard-working family, torn apart by the acts of a vile human Hal once called brother. Now, on their way to vacation. I wish I could say things get better for the Rogers. I really do. But in Florida, there is a man. A predator lying in wait. He's got a long criminal record and a boat that's not quite 30 feet. He owns a dark blue Jeep Cherokee, an uncontrollable violent urge. And this man, this predator's past, is the image of his father hanging by his neck, swaying in a basement. When he closes his eyes at night, he recounts the memory of jumping in his father's grave, slamming his hands on the coffin. Next time... We go further into detail of Oba Chandler, what we know about his life, his death, and his monstrous actions. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning.
Let's been captured.